Hello and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. Summer is almost done. A reshuffle has already been completed and Nadine Dorries has, after keeping the Westminster press pack rather busy, finally gone. At least we think so. So, after a short break from politics, and we probably all needed one, Inside Briefing is up and running again, here to take a deep breath and take stock of the last few months and to look ahead to what will definitely be a lively autumn for Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer and everyone working in, around and following British politics. From reshuffles to more by-elections, party conferences to the return of Parliament, pledges, missions and more besides, we've got plenty to discuss today and I'm delighted that back in the studio with me, after a few years working away as a civil servant in the heart of government, is the IFG's new Director of Impact, Joe Owen. Hello, Joe. Hello. Have you decompressed? I think so. I've had a lovely summer back at IFG Towers and has only taken me two months to start mouthing off on podcasts again. (laughs) (laughs) Delighted to have you here to mouth off. We're also joined by Tom Pope, our Deputy Chief Economist. Hi, Tom. Hi, Hannah. Did you have a summer break from thinking about interest rates and inflation and so on? Yeah, I managed a bit of time off from thinking about those things. (laughs) Although you had an excellent piece out this week addressing just those things, so not too much of a break. And Kath Hatton, our IFG Programme Director for the IFG Academy, is here with us too. Hi, Kath. Hello, Hannah. I know you've had a good holiday. I have. I've been away for quite a We've bit. We've missed of... you, Kath. Yeah. Well, I've, I've missed all of you. <laughs> I've missed the podcast, but I haven't missed British politics. But yeah, it's good to be back. Well, for an unusual summer, there's not been that much going on, but let's dig into it and see what we make of what has gone on. I think we'll start actually probably with today's reshuffle, which has brought us back to politics in Whitehall. It was a relatively small one, Kath, as these things go. Yeah, there's been talk all summer about, well, there's been talk for months. We were just discussing the constant threat of reshuffle that loom over Whitehall all the time. But certainly over the summer, there's been long rumours about Sunak doing a reshuffle and quite a major one. But then in the last couple of weeks, it was more pushed back to, no, he might do that later in the autumn, possibly after the party conferences, possibly in and around the King's speech, which will relaunch the government's agenda in November. So we, we wait to hear. But the one today was largely because Ben Wallace wanted to step down as Defence Secretary. And so it was to sort of fill that gap and then make sure to to backfill the appointments that then happened. So Tom, just run us through quickly what has happened and what we know about the new faces on the block. As Kat said, it was sort of the, the minimum necessary number of changes. So Grant Shapps has moved from the Department of Energy Security and Net Zero to defence. And he's been replaced by Claire Coutinho, who I suppose is the most interesting person in this reshuffle. In a way, she was previously a minister in the education department. I suppose a couple of key things to know about her. Firstly, she's a member of the 2019 intake of Conservative MPs, and the first of those to make it to cabinet level, so very much a high flyer. And and perhaps not unrelatedly, she's a long-time Rishi Sunak ally, a background in banking before she went into parliament and was also a special advisor to Rishi Sunak when he was the Chief Secretary to the Treasury and then a Parliamentary Private Secretary when he was Chancellor. Um, So I think all of that suggests that she probably has quite a Treasury and quite a Rishi Sunak view of the world. So does the fact that Sunak's appointed her to the Energy Department offer us any clue about what he sees that brief needing to deliver, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's a, a reshuffle that tried to promote stability as much as possible, you know, did the minimum necessary moving of the deck chairs, and yet chose to move this department. 
I mean, I think that suggests that Sunak either wanted to indicate a bit of a change there or that it perhaps isn't high on his priority list. It's interesting because there are lots of live issues going on in that department. The energy bill will be coming back for its common report stage next week. And there's sort of the, the ongoing ULES debates as well. And I think so far as the net zero debate can sort of be crudely divided between those who think we should do whatever it takes to get to net zero and those who are perhaps more worried about the cost of that transition. Um, I think someone who you could broadly characterize as treasury minded is likely to be more on the worrying about the cost of transition side of that, which perhaps gives a steer on where Sunak lies on that spectrum as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, at this stage in the electoral cycle, anyone he puts in sends the signal that he's got faith in them. He, he must assume that she'll be good on the media, that she'll be good in this particular brief, and that she'll handle the key issues that are coming out. And I think probably the same is true of the defence move. There's been lots of names have been mooted over the last few weeks, in particular in the last couple of days, about who might take over. John Glenn, who is currently the chief secretary, was long touted as a name. There was even Liam Fox having his name thrown around. But with reshuffles, you're never quite sure whether the person briefing out somebody's name is the person whose name is being briefed out. So obviously shows that if he's putting Shaps in there, he, he wants him to do a particular job, whether that is across the airwaves quite a lot. Maybe it's because he wants somebody with a bit of a different take, somebody who has worked in a department that's dealt with infrastructure before. And a lot of it is probably about thinking about the reshuffle to come, because presumably if he is planning on doing another bigger one, he's not planning on moving these two posts at the moment. So they were clearly slots that he felt that he could fill this time round and, and leave them out for the next one. And speaking of reshuffles in general, Joe, we've got an interesting new paper about reshuffles out this week. This is your chance to, to plug that. I will plug it. People should read it. It's very good. <laughs> um, it's by our excellent new senior fellow, Tim Loinig, and draws on his experience as an advisor in the Treasury, DFE, and a host of other government departments. It talks about some of the maybe suboptimal outcomes that we get from our current reshuffle process, which I think can best be described as a small number of people in a wood panelled room and a whiteboard or a virtual whiteboard playing a sort of fancy football style pick your own cabinet. The sort of heart of Tim's proposal seems very obvious, but is also quite radical, which is ministers should maybe apply for the jobs that they want to do and set out why they'd be good at doing them. Outrageous. Which is outrageous, I know. But that also includes introducing some fun new process around that, including telling the world that there will be a reshuffle and giving people a few days to do said application, which I'm sure podcasts and papers would absolutely love. And then a very fun envelope reveal at a cabinet table, which I don't <laughs> yeah. want to spoil because people should read it. Yeah, Read that paper. And I mean, you've, as we said, just rejoined us from the civil service where you were working in the cabinet office. What's it like in government when there's a reshuffle underway? This is a very civil servant answer, but it depends. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think it sort of depends on the type of reshuffle that you see. There's a sort of low on the reshuffle Richter scale. There's reshuffles like today when a couple of people move around. For departments like the Ministry of Defence, who've obviously had Ben Wallace for four years, it will be a really big change because they'll have someone at the top who works in a totally different way. But for most other civil servants, it will feel like business as usual and not much has changed. Then sort of halfway up the reshuffle Richter scale, you have uh, the sort of reshuffle that we've been promised for a while where quite a few people move around. Stuff does start to grind to a halt for the few days afterwards as new ministers try and understand their brief, what they think about some of the in-flight issues that might have been running pretty hard until the day that the reshuffle was announced. So things slow down, people start to understand the preferences of 
of new ministers. And if there are changes in places like the Treasury and the Chancellor, for example, that can have much bigger repercussions across across government. And then to complete my fun uh, reshuffle Richter scale, you've got the very top end, which I think is probably fairest to describe as the sort of perma reshuffle of those few days of Boris Johnson trying to keep plugging (laughs) gaps as they kept emerging, where as a civil servant, you can do nothing but what everyone else was doing, which is sort of spectating and trying to keep up with who's going to turn up to what meeting and trying to remember who's been put where this week. It's not really a reshuffle, more an omni-shuffle. A constant shuffle, yeah. 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 I think the thing is, you know, that kind of makes the point of where I would disagree with Tim Loinig's suggestion. I mean, everything that he identifies in terms of the problems, the sort of constant churn, the fact that actual skill of being a minister isn't really prioritised. There's so many other factors that go into it. And that ministers then aren't able to conceive of where do their strengths lie? What policy areas are they interested in? Where would they be good? Whatever. Some of that does happen anyway, because there are conversations with the whips. There are other ways of finding that out. But the problem of them applying, the problem of turning it into that kind of approach is that you end up in this sort of permanent state of people vying for position. And that is one of the biggest problems of people constantly threatening a reshuffle is that stuff does grind to halt, not just because the civil service are uncertain what's going on, but also because ministers become distracted. It creates the wrong incentives for why they're trying to show off getting on the media or telling the whips what marvellous work that they did the other week, taking a bill through or, or whatever. And you really need ministers to just have periods of time where they just get down to doing the work and they aren't being distracted by these kinds of things. Yeah, I think if... if- there was a moment in time where a reshuffle had been formally announced and ministers were in, and MPs were invited to make their pitch as to why they should do different jobs. The the number 10 switchboard would be like a sort of disco light of <laughs> things popping up and everyone wanting to make their case directly to the prime minister, the prime minister's team about why they'd be absolutely perfect for all sorts of different jobs. And Kath, what about the also much trailed Labour reshuffle? Yeah, so we've been expecting reshuffles from both of them for some time. Also unclear when that will happen. It's always difficult to know, do you do it before your party conference? In which case, how long have people got to prepare for potentially going out and doing new speeches? Or perhaps you revamp your party conference because you're bringing in new people. Or do you wait later? But I mean, in Labour's case, there's both the practical and the political reasons for doing this. The practical is that they haven't adjusted to the new departments that were created. So there's a kind of how much do they match up with those? And that will be a question for Keir Starmer. Does he go for the same or uh, does he stick with older titles? Again, lots of sort of rumours always swirl about people vying for this job, that job, people briefing against each other and so forth. So he'll need to quieten that down by either getting on with it or sort of shutting up. And from our point of view, the other practical side of this is that if there is an election in just over a year's time, possibly sooner, if Labour were to win that election and get into government, how much time do these shadows need to be able to prepare for that? And our research suggests that the longer you've had shadowing a brief in opposition, the better the transition you make into that department. So in a sense, Starmer needs to get on with it. Okay, let's roll back a few weeks and months. Kath, it felt like an unusually quiet summer on the political news front. Yeah, I mean, I got a real sense this summer that for the journalists, it was a real struggle to get the newsworthy stories going because they have been so used to year after year of crisis, sometimes political crisis of their own making, sometimes a leadership contest like we saw last summer. 
sometimes an international crisis. COVID obviously was a big factor for for a few years and then Brexit. So yeah, it does feel like the first one in a long time where you actually get proper silly season where bizarre political stories end up making the running because there isn't much else news going on. The government tried to control that with their various weeks of crime week, health week, small boats week and so forth. But these things were always very difficult for them to control. Joe, what's it like being a civil servant while ministers are working hard in their constituencies? I think lots of what Kath just said applies to the experience for a lot of civil servants in recent years. And you can add to some of Kath's list on Brexit and COVID and international crises and leadership contests. Also, spending reviews have generally been run well until the the previous one on a pretty much annual basis in which most of the bidding happened over the summer. So departments were working very hard on developing spending review bids. So I think this summer from the people I have spoken to at least has felt like what the mythical summer was supposed to feel like where it does actually you does can actually go on holiday down. and know that you might not get it broken by something major hitting i think that's right and i mean there was always a thing where because so many people go on holiday if you're one of the unlucky people that's not on holiday and a thing happens it doesn't yeah. really matter if it's got nothing to do with your normal day-to-day job you're just a person that's around in august and therefore you are suddenly working on said thing but also i mean i think it probably ministers being properly off and like actually having proper holidays will have changed the dynamic for lots of departments. Although I imagine some of them use that as free time to come up with ideas and send in fun requests to the private office about why certain things were and weren't happening. So I don't think it's been total bliss. Tom, let's turn our attention to the economy. As usual, we're getting calls from Conservative MPs for tax cuts. What's your take on how likely that is over the next year? Yeah, that, that's right. It normally doesn't take that much for sort of a fresh round of calls for tax cuts, which I, I think, to be fair, is because both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have strongly hinted at every available opportunity that they really would love to do tax cuts, really, if uh, if the situation allowed. And there was a bit of excitement last week when the public finance monthly numbers come out, which isn't normally something that sparks much excitement. But that showed that the government is currently on course to borrow quite a lot less this year than the OBR forecast back in March, which got lots of people thinking, well, does that mean there's going to be some headroom for the Chancellor to finally, finally cut some taxes? And however, I think Jeremy Hunt has already moved quite swiftly to close that down. There are reports he's already ruled out tax cuts this autumn. And I think overall, that seems pretty sensible. The economic situation is still very uncertain and very changeable. We still don't really know how either economic growth or inflation are going to keep developing. It has been a quiet summer, but you periodically get these different data releases of economic data. And every one seems to have a bit of a surprise that slightly changes the narrative. It's certainly not a very clear picture that we're getting. And I don't think we're in the kind of position where a Chancellor could commit to permanent tax giveaways. And as I mentioned at the start, you've got a paper out this week, which looks into this question a bit more deeply. Yeah, so we, we read the runes a bit on how the OBR's forecast this autumn might change. Of course, that's based on a lot of different assumptions that the OBR might make. But based on the fact that the fiscal numbers are looking a bit better, we sort of looked into, well, why is that? And the answer really is that it's inflation. And that can be good for the public finances because the type of inflation that we seem to be getting now, rather than that inflation that we got in 2022, which was driven by rising external prices. So we're trying to spend more to import food and energy. More of the inflation now is domestically generated. So it's wage pressures leading to price rises. If wages are going up more in cash terms, 
Well, that means higher income tax receipts, more spending, higher VAT receipts, and so on. So that actually increases government tax revenues. But it's not the economy being stronger in real terms. It's just higher inflation. And that only makes the public finance numbers look better because of what we assume about spending. Basically, the government sets out in cash terms how much that each department is going to have to spend over the next few years. And that doesn't automatically change when inflation does. So in effect, the public finance numbers might look a bit better, but that's only going to be because really there's a sort of hidden cuts to departmental spending. It's still going to be the same in cash terms, which means it doesn't stretch as far in real terms. So I think any kind of public finance improvement we might see, I would characterize as a bit of a mirage, really. And given where we know public services are, where our performance tracker supported by SIPFA has has shown struggling public services across the board, really, that's seen most apparently in the NHS, but in other areas as well. And there are already very tight plans for departments going forward. It's not like before a bit more inflation came along, it looked like those plans were going to be really generous. I think it's it's already quite hard to see how sort of any fiscal windfall could be spent on tax cuts rather than than higher spending. And do you think Rishi Sidnak's any closer to meeting his pledge on inflation? I mean, that pledge, as many people pointed out at the time, was always a bit of a hostage to fortune because there's only so many ways that the prime minister himself can affect inflation. I think the latest forecast suggests that it's on a knife edge. So I think the latest Bank of England forecast would have him meeting that pledge, but only by 0.1 or 0.2 percentage points. I think that really does display the sort of folly of that kind of pledge that's so outside of your control. Inflation is a responsibility that we've given broadly to the Bank of England. We've decided that interest rates are the best way to control that, given that the Prime Minister doesn't control interest rates and that inflation is also affected by a bunch of other things as well outside of the Prime Minister's control, not least international factors. It's really quite a hard one to commit to. And I think that has caused a particular challenge when the Prime Minister has perhaps tried to use the levers that he does have at his disposal to try to affect inflation when they're maybe not the best levers to use. And I think the most obvious example there is public sector pay. Quite a lot of reluctance to settle on public sector pay, in part because of the concern of the the effect that might have on inflation. And yes, those public sector pay awards might have some effect on inflation, but trying to hold down public sector pay just to meet a sort of inflation target causes other problems too, because really you need your public sector pay to be calibrated to ensure that you can hire and retain a high enough quality public sector workforce. Kath, I should ask how Keir Starmer's summer worked out. It seems as though the aftershocks of the Uxbridge by-election are still reverberating through Labour's yes, thinking. Yes, I was debating with Joe earlier, is it Ules or Ules or what? I go Ules. I'm Ules too. I think Fine. Ules is very French. Sticking with Ules. It's that difficult vulnerability that you've got, where anyone's got. You're vying to be in central government, but Labour are also in government in some form elsewhere in the country. And the Conservatives have clearly identified that as a a tactic. So earlier in the summer, there was a lot of talk about the Welsh government and what they were doing lately because the expansion of ULES came in this week to cover all of Greater London. The Conservatives have been using that and the opposition to it, which was demonstrated supposedly in the Uxbridge by-election to try and give the mayor and Keir Starmer are kicking. So you saw yesterday Rishi Sunak for the clips of a media pool was was talking about the ULES brought in by Labour mayor and Keir Starmer, though it was actually Boris Johnson who started the ball rolling on that front. 
I think he's had a good summer elsewhere. I believe he rescued a dog whilst on holiday or something or other. I saw that from France. It's always tricky, isn't it? It's that period of time over the summer where, yes, the government are trying to control a bit of the media narrative by announcing particular weeks of covering particular issues. They have a grid, they have announcements to come out. That goes off course for Labour. Is it just they respond to that or do they start announcing their own areas? And yet we're also in this phony war period, not only before a general election, but also before the party conference seasons in a few weeks' time. Which is a great segue. Thank Uh, you. (laughs) (laughs) To look at what is coming down the track. Parliament is back next week, but not for very long. We've got this short couple of week session before the party conference season kicks in shortly after that, which we're all very much looking forward to here at IFG Towers. We've got a very full programme at both the major conferences and at the SNP this year. Cass, though, to uh, draw that short advert to a close, what should we be looking out for when Parliament returns? Uh, well, as Joe mentioned earlier on, the big thing next week, I think, is the energy bill coming back with quite a lot of amendments that the new Secretary of State is going to have to deal with. I'm looking at him. He can cover that in a second. I, it's always a weird time. Politicians are quite mixed views on whether it's worth coming back for these few weeks or whether it looks really bad if you don't come back before you then go into the recess for party conference. But for me, I I mean, you know, party conference is going to be the political thing for people to focus on because whatever the timetable is to the next general election, this is the last big party conference because if it is an election next autumn or even if the government pushed it until January 2025, the last possible moment for a general election, next year's one will have to be, you've already decided your manifestos, your lines of attack and so forth. So it's really just holding the line. This one is the last chance to really bring the party together to start exploring some major new policy areas. And if you are the government, your chance to start or try to change the narrative because Rishi Sunak will have been in government for almost a year by that point. A lot of that has been focused on dealing with the aftermath of the the government that he inherited. And so it really is a case of can the Conservatives actually change the polls, change the political weather at the moment and reverse course, which is a lot of mixed metaphors. (laughs) Tom, just to build on that, point Kath's made there. Rishi Sunak, as you've already said, made some pledges on the economy, which were difficult for him to really deliver on in the sense of things being under his control. He hasn't got a brilliant story to be able to tell at conference on the economy or, or the state of public services. Do you think he'll have some kind of surprise up his sleeve to delight a party faithful? I think it's quite hard to see what a sort of big bang surprise that really would change the narrative would look like, given how little control in a way a prime minister has over the way the economy moves, at least in the short term, and given you know the amount of money it would really cost to improve public services quickly. I, mean, I think it's interesting that he, he has actually taken quite decisive action on public sector pay by offering relatively generous awards for this year that should ward off most of the strike action. I think that that does actually help to change the narrative in some sense, it doesn't kind of transform the performance of public services, but I suppose it at least wards off some of the worst distractions. But I think it might be quite difficult to know what a, a really big bang, game changing announcement would look like at this stage. And Joe, at last year's conference, Keir Starmer went big on net zero and Labour's commitment to a zero carbon economy. Do you think he'll be doubling down on that? Or do you think the whole ULES row has changed the calculation? 
it'll be really interesting the ULES round then also if you remember before summer there was also the two child benefit cap so like the the labor game running into the summer was to avoid making any commitments that came with large pound number price tags and they have been accused of tacking too far to the right from that point of view so and so can they survive a conference in which they do not commit to sort of anything that involves public spending to to sort of fuel the transformation that they say they want to deliver in government of their five missions the energy net zero sort of decarbonizing the energy system seems to be the most inconsistent with the idea of not spending much new money because if you want to do that the costs are going to come and ULES is just one example of where costs fall outside of government and are put on to consumers there's challenging politics and so it will be really interesting to see if they both a sort of hold the macro line of we're not committing to any new spending we don't know the state of the public finances Mm. and then b whether the sort of experience of the last few months means that they show any position change from what they've set out on particularly i think the net zero and the energy mission yeah you do feel like since last year's conference which you know a lot of commentators said was quite tight from labor you're used to the infighting in Labour and not in the Conservatives and actually last year it was a complete role reversal because obviously the Conservative conference just descended into a farce and infighting and was quite an extraordinary place to be. And this time around, I suspect it's one of these interesting things from Labour's point of view, they'll probably be quite keen on just tight messaging, again, avoiding any massive rows or anything like that and focusing a lot on the language and the aspiration and so forth and whether they've got any meet anything specific that they're bringing out I guess we'll wait and see for the Conservatives I mean for Rishi Sunak the beauty is that he's starting from such a low bar because <laughs> last year's conference was such a disaster for them it can only be better it can only be better and it might also be a case that actually a lot of people might stay away although we have heard that Nadine Dorries is heading for the conference so he will have at least one critic doing the rounds of the fringe events So really, I think that the big question mark for him is more about the style of the conference rather than the substance. Rishi Sunak has then got a King's speech a month later at the beginning of November. So that will be his opportunity to get out any concrete policy that the government wants to achieve in the next year. And Joe, the other ongoing event of the autumn is going to be the COVID inquiry, which returns. What should we be looking out for there? Module one of the COVID inquiry, which is the one that we have just had and the hearings that we've had was looking about pre-pandemic preparedness. Module two that we'll be moving into this autumn will be current and very recent cabinet ministers talking about their experiences around the cabinet table in making decisions right in the middle of the COVID crisis. And they will be talking about the different perspectives that different people came from, presumably including presumably the prime minister. Therefore, there's sort of the chance for both within the party, some of the like political scabs to start getting picked at through this process is quite high. And then also the chance for some quite challenging messages about how the party and the government as a whole handled COVID, which again, politically is going to be really challenging heading into an election year. And obviously, amidst all this, Kath, Sunak's got to continue to govern. What's his approach going to be? 
Well, we're kind of waiting to see because, I mean, at the moment you have these massive pledges that we've already discussed, which are you either achieve them or you don't, but it's not the same as sort of promising lots of new policy. And then we're seeing little bitty things. And I mean, this is the worry is that a government coming towards the final year before an election, especially one that's on the ropes as far as the polling's concerned, as far as the public's concerned, and has the divided party, is that you just start coming and out for looking for really short-term wins, going for that sort of low-hanging fruit. And there are some major challenges facing the country, challenges that often need cross-party support. So the key thing we're going to be looking out for is, are we seeing signs that actually this is a government that is continuing to govern across all of the issues, or is it one that is so focused and so preoccupied by the election, that ministers are getting distracted, the civil service aren't being given the direction that they needed, and the country loses a year that it really can't afford coming out of COVID, dealing with the consequences of Brexit and facing the long-term challenges that we face as a society. So yes, I think we need to see, do they have the long-term interests still in mind, but also in a way that is achievable, because you don't want to see just a load of pledges which are really not anything at all. It's just talking about aspiration and there isn't really anything that you can get solidly underway in a year's time. And meanwhile, Joe, events overseas will potentially continue to distract. We mustn't forget ongoing war in Europe and there's going to be another election across the Atlantic to keep us busy. Yeah, I'm sure it will keep us busy. I think you're you're definitely right on the sort of ongoing war in Ukraine, particularly the way that links so heavily into the to Sunak's domestic agenda is if things start to deteriorate, that has implications in real time for some of his pledges for the economy and particularly inflation. Tom was saying earlier how actually a lot of that is driven by external factors. One of those external factors is international events. And then, of course, the prospect of another election next year, an autumn election that we we know will happen over in the US, which I'm sure will be absolutely excellent spectating. Could mean we have them going on at the same time, which would be extraordinary for UK and US politics to be so intertwined. Inside briefing will be agog. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much to Joe Owen, Tom Pope and Kath Haddon. Very good to see you all again. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. So give us a poll boost and leave a nice review. Before we go, I want to remind you all that over this summer, we put out a brilliant six part series, which reveals what it takes to be a minister. So make sure you listen back to that one. If you want to be a minister, you never know, there might be another reshuffle. Or if you want to know what it's like to be one. And check out the IFG website for Tom's new paper on the economy, our guest paper on reshuffles and news of our exciting conference programme, which I may have mentioned earlier. And some rather eye-catching upcoming IFG events. Buckle up, everyone. The holiday season is well and truly over. <laughs>